Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Lord, would you open the word to us today? We need to be fed. We need your word. We need Jesus to hear from you. We just, there's so many confusing voices, even inside ourselves. We need you to correct our thinking. We need you to open our eyes and give us vision. We need you to feed us and challenge us and and, and give us courage. Lord, come upon us. Come upon us. Grace me, Lord, to, to let us hear from you. Open your word to us today. We ask it and believe it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in chapter 16. I'm going to read down uh, from verses 5 through 11. Let me tell you what you're hearing today. I call it the plan. As Jesus is talking to his disciples, this is uh, his final evening before he's arrested. Uh, My guess is he's about about two hours out because we know he has an hour there in Gethsemane while he prays. Uh, so we may be two hours out before he's arrested by, by Judas, uh, with who brings the religious police from the, from the temple. And so he's, he's no longer in an upper room. He is somewhere out in the moonlight. It's, it's a full moon on, on Passover. He's out there east of the city, moving toward the uh, uh, Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Probably there on the north end of the Kidron Valley, I think, which had vineyards and all. And he's just done a wonderful illustration of saying, I'm the vine and you're the branches and teaching from that. He's got 11 disciples. Judas is gone. And he's, he's just pouring into these men, just pouring into them. And he's pouring into them the most important things. He, and he's, he's speaking from a, a, a picture in his own mind of what the plan is, what, why he's about to go through what he's going through. He's telling them, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise, and I'm going to go to the Father and pour out the Holy Spirit. They do not compute this. This is not what they were taught as children. Uh, they didn't grow up with this, 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 this thinking, and, and, and so it just seems to bounce off them at this point. Uh, they, they, they're sad. They're sorrowful. But what I want you to see as you listen to it is the deep plan that's in the heart of God. So this is a big picture we're going to see. I'm going to show you what, he, what he's thinking as he talks to them. Because if you understand that, everything he's doing makes total sense. It's a message we need as much today as they needed then. So Holy Spirit, here we go. Gracious. Amen. All right. There we are in that, in that evening, and he says this. But now I am going to him who sent me, verse 5 of chapter 16. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. See that? I'm telling you, I'm going, I'm going to go to the Father, and you're sad about it. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage your prophet that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, and that's the way mine translates the word paraclete, the one who comes when you call, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
Notice he's saying it's a good thing that I'm leaving. It's, it has to happen. It's important because the Holy Spirit's going to come at a whole new level. And they're going, great. <laughs> and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Would you say sin and righteousness and judgment? Yeah, you see, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and, and he's going to, through you and your preaching, he's going to convict the world of these three things. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I, I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. We say the ruler of this world has been judged. All right, and I'll, I'll stop there. What Jesus was about to do would change everything. All that God had done with the human race from the time of Adam and Eve onward looked forward to this moment. Even before he made the world, God peered into the future and saw everything. Listen to how Peter explained this. And I'm going to have you read this with me. This is my translation. I, I'm in my devotional life. I'm, I'm going through Peter in the Greek and I'm just going through it. And uh, it's just kind of a beautiful thing. But listen, listen to this. So read this out loud with me. Knowing that you were ransomed, not with corruptible silver or gold from your futile conduct, which was given to you by your fathers, but with precious blood, as from a lamb without blemish or spot, stain, the blood of Christ, who, having been foreknown from the foundation of the world, but revealed for who he truly is in the last time because of you who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Did you see that line? Having been foreknown. And that's exactly what that word means to know beforehand. Having been foreknown from the foundations of the world. From the foundations of the world. Before he made, before he spoke the word, the word and said, let there be light. Before he, before he made anything, God knew everything that was going to happen. He looked forward and he knew that if he made us, he would give us freedom. Why does he give us freedom? You have to give us freedom or we can't love nor can we be good. You can't be good without freedom. Goodness is the choice to do the right thing. Not that you can, you can turn somebody into a machine and make them do the right thing. That's not good. He wants us like him. He's raising children, not puppets. He's raising children, not slaves. He wants to fellowship with us. He wants to enjoy us. He wants to be with us forever. So he said, I'll make these people and they'll become like my beautiful son. He'll be the eldest brother and there'll be this enormous family of children. By the way, I was just I was just reading through Revelation, reading Revelation a little bit, and it says it, it it's like the it's like the this great multitude, like the sand of the seashore. In other words, uncountable is this great. How how big is God's family going to be in the end? Enormous, as 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 uncountable as the stars in the sky are going to be this family. Well, he saw this, and he all, he saw what we would take that freedom, and we would rebel. He knew that we would sin. He knew that he knew the mess that was going to be. But in his heart, it was worth it because out of this would come this great family. He saw that he would have to send his son. 
He knew that beforehand. He foreknew all these things. That his son would have to become one of us. He would, go through, he, would, he would do these things. He would die a brutal death. He saw that beforehand. He knew he would raise him from the dead. He would seated, be seated at the right hand of the Father. And that from there, God would now be able to pour out the Holy Spirit in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in which would indwell believers in power. And that they now, like his son, would go out into the world and he would have a great harvest. So that would, that would be the moment in which the harvest would explode and he would have souls drawn into his family. He saw all those things beforehand. God saw human sin and all the trouble it would bring. Yet his loving heart refused to let that sin ruin his plan to form a great family of children. As uncountable as the stars in the sky, filled with sons and daughters with whom he could fellowship forever. So even though he knew we would misuse the freedom he gave us, he also knew there was a way he could save those who chose to use that freedom to repent of the rebellion and return to him. His plan would be terribly costly to himself and his beloved son. It would require his son to leave heaven and join the human race. He would live on the planet for about 30 years, and during that time he would raise up disciples who would proclaim him after he was gone. He would be brutally executed. But in doing so, his death would become a substitute for all those who were willing to repent and believe. And then God would raise his son to life, defeating the power of death by removing the condemnation that allows it to keep us in the grave. But his plan contained even more. The cross and resurrection of his son would cleanse the guilt of sin from even, listen to this, even the physical bodies of those who believed in him. Then the father would lift his resurrected son up into heaven and there the son would constantly intercede as a high priest before him whenever one of those believers might sin. Now, because they were perfectly holy, God could send the Holy Spirit to dwell within a human being, empowering that person to serve him in ways which would have been unthinkable before those events took place. Now, like a great army, men and women, young and old, would go forth into the world with a new power and a new message. With a spirit within them, they would minister to lost and broken people just like Jesus had during the years of his earthly ministry. And they would proclaim a new message. They would announce that the Son of God had come and died and that God had raised him from the dead and then seated him at the right hand. They would announce that he was now the Lord of all creation and that his cross and resurrection had defeated Satan, the ruler of this world, allowing humans to escape the strong man's grip. I just rehearsed the plan. That's the plan. That was what he foreknew. That's what he determined before he made the worlds. That's going to happen. God saw all of this before he made the first human, before the first sin was committed, before the earth was cursed, before humans fell under the control of Satan. So as human history progressed, he was always steering it toward that moment in which these great events would take place. And because he foresaw that moment, 
He was able to be merciful to those who sought after him long before that moment arrived. I want to make that point just a little bit. Uh, if you've got your Bible, look with me to Hebrews 11. Some people say, well, what happened to people before Jesus came? Well, the work of Jesus Christ saved them if they repented and trusted in the mercy of the living God. They didn't know all you know. They didn't know the plan. You know the plan. If you didn't, I just told it to you. You know the name of the Son of God. You know how he died. You know how long he was in the grave. You know what happened when he rose. You know where he ascended into heaven from. You know a huge amount of data. They didn't know that. And yet, they became righteous. And there's only one sacrifice in all of history. Only one point in history that, God, that allows God to forgive sin. It was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before and after. All right, let me show you some before here. You're in Hebrews 11. Uh, look at, uh, I'll, I'll start at verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, men of old did what? Gained, Gained approval. Yeah, men of old. And then he starts listing off some of these men and women of, of, of past times who by faith in God became righteous. And he literally says that. And so he says, uh, he mentions Abel uh, and says he offered by faith his sacrifice to the Lord. So he was a righteous man before God. In other words, he's, he has eternal life. He mentions Enoch. He mentions uh, uh, Noah. And I, I love this verse, verse 7, about Noah. Look at that. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark. So in other words, by faith, he prepared an ark. For the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world. So he was prophetically condemning their lifestyle. And became an heir of what? The righteousness which is according to faith. Say the righteousness which is according to faith. That's what you have. That's what, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are given the righteousness which is according to faith. You don't earn it. It is given to you to those who believe. It is a gift upon them. Noah had it. Now, what did he know about the plan? I mean, the guy built a boat. He knew it was going to flood because these people were not walking with God. They were walking in unrighteousness. And so he knew he had to build a boat. It took him 100 years. That's a lot of faith. And he builds this boat and gathers his family in and saves his family. And God saw his faith, his repentance. Of course, he also piled up stones, offered sacrifice, confessed his sins, called on God for mercy. And Noah had the righteousness of faith. Noah's in heaven. Noah's with God. Abel is in heaven. Abel's with God. Enoch's in heaven. He's with God. Because of Jesus Christ. Because God could look forward from the foundations of the world and see his son's cross, see his son's sacrifice, see that he paid for the sin of the human race, the entire human race, that he broke its power and that all who would come to God in mercy, 
call on him for his mercy and repent of their sin would be given righteousness. Isn't that wonderful? All right, I'll stop there. Let's go back. But as Jesus spoke to his disciples that evening, they did not understand God's plan. They had been taught a different plan. They did not understand that they were about to observe the most important events in all of history. All they heard was Jesus saying he was going to leave, and that made them sad. But Jesus, though he was already experiencing enormous stress, remember he just he'd said there in chapter 12, he said, you know, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm already, he said, and my hour has come and I'm just suffering. So you can imagine, he's, he personally is enduring this, knowing what was about to happen to him that was joyful in his spirit. You can hear it in the way he talks. Because he knew the plan. He knew the forgiveness, the forgiveness his death would bring. He knew he was about to release a doomed human race from the power of death and Satan. He knew he would rise from the dead and return to heaven. And he knew that because of what he had done, he would send forth the Holy Spirit. Notice how important that is in his equation. He would send forth the Holy Spirit into his people and then a great harvest of souls would begin. Jesus saw the plan that night and he warned, wanted his disciples to see it too. Because if they really saw it, it would change their perspective. It would turn their sorrow into joy. They would realize that they were about to be the first humans to step into the new era of the Holy Spirit. To taste for the first time the powers of the age to come. They would, re re they would realize the honor they had been given to announce to the world the name of God's Son. And to declare to them, that the salvation God had promised beginning in the Garden of Eden had finally come. He knew that if they understood God's plan, even though they would face tremendous opposition in the years ahead, they would remain joyful. And he knew that if we who believe on him through their word understand God's plan, we too will be joyful. Let's listen to what he promised to them that night. One of the things, I, I, I want you to see something, and I'm going to really try to make this point. Why couldn't the baptism of the Holy Spirit happen before the cross of Jesus Christ? You heard me say for the first time this would happen. For the first time. Now, we all know that the Holy Spirit was active all through the Holy, Old Testament, right? I mean, you, you, help, help me, name, name a few people upon whom the, the Spirit of God was powerfully at work in the, in the Old Testament. Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, who did I hear over here? John the Baptist, how about that one? Uh, David, we, Samuel poured the oil over David. You know, remember Samuel is sitting there and Saul shows up and the power is so strong. Saul is slain of the spirit and lies on the ground, you know, babbling away for three days. Come on, that's power, folks. So it is not that you do not see the power of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. You do see it. But what, but what you don't have is what Jesus Christ made possible. And it could not happen until he did it. And I'll explain in a minute. He made it possible for the spirit to live inside you. That was not possible before. I'll explain in a minute. 
Jesus did not want his disciples to be sorrowful. They must be made to understand that everything that was about to take place was happening according to a divine plan. His death was absolutely necessary. It was the only reason God had or ever would forgive human sin. After his great atoning work was finished, he would return to heaven and his presence there would make it possible for the Father to send the Holy Spirit in a new powerful dimension, which Jesus had been describing to his disciples all through their years together. Do you hear it? All through his, all those years, he kept saying, it's coming, it's coming. You're going to have the spirits coming when he comes. Oh, when he comes, he kept talking about a new age of the spirit. To give them this perspective, he said, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I should go away. For if I do not go away, the paraclete, the helper, will by no means come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Imagine this. It's better to have Jesus gone so that the Spirit would come than to have Jesus stay. I mean, if we took a vote right now, I bet it'd be divided. We'd, how many would want to say, how many, don't raise your hand, I want to see this. How many would rather Jesus stayed? You know, and I'm, I'm probably over in that camp going, yeah, I kind of would, you know. But he says, no, no. He says, if you understood the plan, you'd be glad I left. You'd be glad I left. It's more important that the spirit come in this new dynamic and do in you and through you what he's going to do than if I stayed here on the planet. Jesus tried to convince his disciples that his return to heaven was something that should bring them joy. Because until he was seated at the Father's right hand, they could not be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Only after he returned to heaven could they receive the Holy Spirit at a level no human, other than Jesus himself, had ever received. And when the Spirit came to them, he would turn them into witnesses so effective that they would actually be able to carry on Jesus' ministry. As a result, they would experience the same responses he had. Some people would welcome them and believe. Others would hate them. Jesus was the first example of a human functioning in this new potential. i got to stop there, too. What you see in Jesus, you've got you've to be clear on this. We know that he is the divine son of God, that, he, that his spirit came from heaven and was incarnated, conceived into, into a, a, a human child in Mary's womb. He became a man. He didn't look like a man. He became a man. I, I have a, 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 a body, a soul, and a spirit. You have a body, a soul, and a spirit. Jesus had a body, a soul, and a spirit. Only my spirit began when I was conceived in my mother's womb. Yours did too. Jesus' spirit was from eternity. You follow the difference? But he's as, man, he's as human, body, soul, and spirit as you are. But he's from forever. He, he's from, he came from heaven, from, from the Father, and he became a man. So when you watch Jesus ministering, it's an interesting situation. You, when you're a, your, your spirit's you. So you can't forget who you are, and you can't forget what you know. I mean, there's a sense in which if Jesus wanted to, he could sort of analyze the molecular structure of everybody he's talking to, or, or you know, he, he, amen. And, <laughs> and he, he could just look at things and, and know everything. But here's the, here's the wonder of it. Paul, Paul explains it in, in Philippians 2. 
He says, he, though he counted it not robbery to be equal with God. That's the way he says it. In other words, Jesus would not have been stealing a, a privilege and honor that was not his by calling himself equal with the Father. You follow that? So he's as divine as the Father. He's as, he's as holy and glorious and wonderful as, the, as his Father. He's, he's, he's of his Father in every way. Though he counted it not robbery to be equal with God, he, 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 he divested himself. He, he laid down his privileges and his honor. It's, and the picture is like taking a coat off and laying it down. He laid down his divine glories and his divine knowledge, his divine powers. He set them aside. Now, I think he had to constantly do that. I think it was a constant choice as he went through life not to use that, not to turn to that. I think that was the temptation in the wilderness when he's literally, after 40 days, uh, starving to a very severe point. The devil says, you are the son of God. Just turn the stone into bread. And he could have. I mean, good, hot French bread. I mean, he could have, <laughs> bang, and we've got bread. And what was his, he says, I'll not do a thing the Father hasn't told me to do. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that cometh from the mouth of God. So he, he submitted. He says, no, I will not use that. No, I will not turn to that power. He was constantly doing that. And so everything you see in the ministry of Jesus, he says, I only do what I hear. I only speak what I hear. I everything you hear, I've, I've received. It's not coming from me. He says it over and over. It's not coming from me. It's coming from him. You, are, you and I are watching a man baptized in the Holy Spirit. When did he get baptized in the Holy Spirit? Jordan. The Jordan River. That was exactly what happened. His ministry did not begin until that moment. He didn't do miracles as a boy. You know, there's, there's silly stories about that, but they're, they're, they're completely fallacious. He did not do anything. He was a really good son who worked really hard. And apparently his dad died somewhere, his stepdad died somewhere along the way. And he was the oldest son of the family caring for his mom and a whole bunch of kids. And that was his life. And then he went down to that Jordan River and he came and, and, and the power came on him. And it says he went out of there in the power of the spirit. So what you watch, when you watch Jesus heal the sick, when you watch him turning bread into feed of, of, of 15,000 people, you are watching a man baptized in the Holy Spirit. You can't just stand back and admire and go, wow, that's what the Son of God does. Huh? That's so cool. You, you and I, he actually challenges us. He becomes a, a prototype, not simply an icon. You have to go, I could do that if I walked in the intimacy with God that he walked. I have been given the same spirit. He has opened my ear, opened my eye. I could walk with God, whatever my assignment will look like, but I can walk in the same power he walked in. Say, say that. It's almost scary to say it, but say it. I could walk in the same power that he walked in. So he literally is our model, not just our Lord and, and Savior. He's our model showing us how we're to live. This is the plan. So can you, can you, see, can you see the brilliance of God? Jesus says, if I go to the Father, 
The Spirit's going to come to you and indwell you the way he's indwelled me. And now we got thousands of evangelists. You know what Luther called them? Little Christs. In other words, men and women who, like Christ, are now being, he's not comparing us to him and saying we are him, but we're, we're humans. He's, he's spirit's divine. You aren't divine. You are, you're pretty nice, but you're not divine. <laughs> you, you, are, you are a redeemed, adopted child of God. You, through Christ, are given the privileges of, of being a child of God. You will someday shine like the sun, but you are a created being. You are not, a, you are not divine. Uh, you, you, you began. He is different of, in, that, in his spirit. And there's just no comparison there. But what you watch with a man, Jesus, is you watch a man baptized in the Holy Spirit. Before that sin, before that, sin always made it impossible for the Spirit to dwell in a person's body. I mean, we said, we mentioned David as being a man of the Spirit. But did David have sin? Yeah, in case you wonder, he did. (laughs) Did it affect his body? And let's not get specific. Yes, it sure did. So his body's contaminated. He is a murderer. He is an adulterer. He was actually quite a vicious soldier, apparently, and may have done some very brutal things on the battlefield. There's reference to that that's uh, appalling, actually, at times. And God says, I can't use you. You're a man of blood. I mean, there was a violence to David. Uh, There were... So before that, sin always made it impossible for the spirit to indwell a person's body. There were those upon whom the Spirit came in great power, but never before could it be said, quote, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Say that. From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. In order for the sin that resides in our flesh to be removed, Jesus first had to be put, had to put on our flesh, be crucified, resurrected, and then ascend to heaven so that he could intercede for us each time we fail. Paul explained this in his letter to the Romans. He, he took on, you're going to see a phrase here, and I want you to see it as it goes by. He took on our sinful, uh, he became, well, the likeness of our sinful flesh. Let's, let's read it out loud. For what the law of Moses could not do, weak as it was through the flesh... God did, sending his own son, here it is, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that is an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's what Paul just said. He said, Jesus put on our sinful human flesh. He didn't just look like a human. He took on the stuff. You said, why did he use the word likeness? Well, because he didn't sin. And so he, there's a sense in which Paul does not want to say he took on our sinful flesh in, in, a, in a sense. But he, he, took on, he took on our flesh like Adam. He becomes the second Adam. His spirit was not rebellious. So there's just, there's the difference. But he had in him the same passions, the same uh, adrenaline, the same stuff that surges through you. All surges through him. He got tired, he got hungry, he got weary. He had all of the temptations that you have. And in fact, I would suppose far more savagely. The devil would see to it. He would, he would go after him at a level he doesn't, he doesn't usually mess with us. 
And so Jesus had all of that. So he took on the likeness of our sinful flesh. And then he says, and condemned sin in the flesh. Say in the flesh. When Jesus took on our flesh and he died on the cross, he died not only for your spirit or mine. My spirit, as I came into the world, was separated from God. It has, by its nature, rebellion. Don't tell me no. Don't tell me no. It has an independence. I can do this. I don't need God. I don't need anybody. I'll do this. It has, it has a selfishness. It's about me. Am I happy? You know, if I have to run over you to get there, well, that's just the way it is. It's collateral damage. I'm selfish. I'm independent. And I'm rebellious. You are too. It's the, it's the, it's the, 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 the nature of our, of our human spirit when separated from God. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to, uh, to atone my spirit. And that barrier of sin and that Adamic nature, that rebellion, was removed. So I now have a, a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. So do you. But what about my body? This, 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 this machine that I live in, it also has been part of the sin. It's been involved in stuff. It's said words. It's thought thoughts. It's, it's, been, it's done things that are unclean and foul. It's contaminated. Well, how does the Holy Spirit of God come and live in a, in a filthy place like my body? Even though my spirit's redeemed, how do you live there? Paul just explained that when Christ died for us, he also atoned our flesh. My body still sins, but so does my, so does my spirit, I suppose you could argue. <laughs> I still do stuff, but now I have a high priest, and he intercedes for me constantly. And so my body is now before God a clean place. Am I making sense? Am I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to keep this. Follow me. Stay with me. Your body, Jesus died for your body, not just your spirit. And, and here's the proof of it. You will be resurrected and your body will be glorious. Your body is, is, is in process. But, but he has redeemed your body, not just your spirit. You don't float off on a cloud somewhere. You will be resurrected as a, as a, as a healthy, strong, glorious, immortal human being. This is God's plan in the beginning. And he'll always come back to his plan. We will live on a beautiful planet. We're not going to float somewhere. I mean, we may have, you hope you can travel. But <laughs> that's, that's just me. But we're going to live on a glorious, a glorious place in a, in, in a redeemed body. So now, with my body being cleansed and continually cleansed, even when I fail and, and, and do dumb stuff now, I am considered by the Father holy. So he can now take his Holy Spirit and he can dwell and you notice that phrase that was used, innermost being? The word means your body cavity. And, and, and that phrase that Jesus quoted in John 7, he quotes right straight out of Ezekiel 36. Same word in the Hebrew is translated absolutely in exact sense into the Greek. Body cavity. So the Spirit of God literally now will come and live inside us. You are a holy temple of God even on your worst day. Isn't that amazing? In other words, Jesus died to redeem not only our spirits, but also our bodies. 
though those bodies still contain a sinful nature and are dying, they too have been made clean in God's sight, which allows the Father to place the Holy Spirit within our bodies, making us living temples. This new power enormously changes our capacity to minister, which greatly increases our fruitfulness, which means many more sons and daughters will be gathered into God's family. That fact alone is enough to turn our sorrow into joy. The description of, this, of the crucifixion of the, of, of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 is followed immediately by shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no children. Ex extend your tent pegs and put out your curtains for your, your household now is going to explode with children. You see that? Now, Jesus said, if you understood why I'm going and what I'm going to do, why I ascend to heaven, you'd rejoice. This is good. This is good. This is a plan. Then Jesus explained how the proclamation of the kingdom of God would change after these events took place. He said when the Holy Spirit came upon his disciples, they would be empowered to preach in such a way that they would convict the world of three essential truths. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. I've often been taught from that passage that it meant that the Holy Spirit does the convicting and I don't have to. I don't have any responsibility. No, he says, and when the spirit comes to you, he will convict the world. And so it's through us as we pray, uh, proclaim Christ. And then he briefly explained the new revelation that would be associated with each one. Number one, sin. In the past, God's message concerning sin had been focused on repenting and receiving God's mercy by offering animal sacrifices. But in the future, it would focus on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. To reject Jesus would be to reject God's offer of salvation. Jesus said the Spirit would convict the world of sin that they do not believe in me. Now, the message is Christ. You notice through the Gospel of John, he constantly says, they don't believe in me. They don't believe in me. It becomes it becomes. The, 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 we know the name of the Savior. We know what God has done. And so it is focused on Jesus Christ. Number two, righteousness. In the past, God's message concerning righteousness, meaning right standing with God, was based on a person's obedience to the commandments written in the law. But in the future, a believer would become righteous by placing their faith in Jesus. They would trust that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for them. And when the father resurrected him from the dead and lifted him up to heaven, he was announcing that Jesus was righteous, perfectly sinless, and that his death had successfully paid for the sins of the entire human race. As Jesus died on the cross, he said in, in, in Greek, tetelestai, paid in full. Say paid in full. Meaning, and, and, and did he know what that meant? I mean, he said, I, I've done it. I have done it. I have paid in full. For the sin of the world. And, when, and when, when, when the father resurrected him from the dead. Uh, on, on, on that early Sunday morning. The father goes. Amen. Paid in full. He announced his righteousness. And he announced ours. Meaning every sin. Has been paid for. And those of us who receive it by faith. And walk in that. We, we receive it. Number three, judgment. In the past, the message concerning judgment had focused on the hope that Satan, 
the ruler of this world, would be defeated when the Messiah set up God's kingdom on earth. He would come. He would defeat God's enemies. He would set up a kingdom of righteousness. and The curse would be removed from the planet, the whole thing. But in the future, the moment of Satan's defeat would be understood to be Jesus' death and resurrection, not his glorious return to earth. Did that, you follow what I said? It's, it's the cross, not the coming again that defeats Satan. When dealing with the ruler of this world, future believers would look back to the fact that Jesus broke the power of sin by removing all condemnation from those who believe in him. And then he gave them authority over the works of the devil. His disciples would soon be declaring that his cross and resurrection guaranteed Satan's future judgment and doom. They would be announcing that the ruler of this world has been judged. Say, has been judged. Has been judged. Yeah, it's already done. And so when you, when you, whenever you go and wherever you are, you, you, you come in the name of Jesus, you come with that authority over Satan himself. So do you and I see God's plan? Does it give us joy? Yes, I admit, when we look back at history, we can tell that something went wrong. But the problem isn't with the plan. It's with those who failed to receive it and proclaim it. Within a generation or so after these, uh, those original disciples died, many people stopped following the plan and came up with a new plan of their own. So when we look back at history of the church, we discover things are difficult or things that are difficult or even impossible to explain. I mean, look back at church history. Where did the plan go? We see pieces of it. We see it being worked at times. I've just been reading the life of a, of a, of a missionary named Jonathan Goforth and his wife Rosalind in China back in the turn of the century. And incredible, incredible work of God. And, and, I've, and I'm now reading his book. Man was baptized in the spirit and preaches it. Boy, he had fruit. There's the plan at work. But also, look, how about the Crusades? That, that fit the plan? Yeah, come on, cut their heads off. You know, that's ridiculous. Can you imagine Jesus showing up in the middle of one of those battles? What are you doing? How about these big, enormous, elaborate, expensive buildings and all the, all the gaudy robes and, and, and wealth? That, that, does that fit the plan? Not at all. Not at all. So you look back at history and you go, where'd the plan go? In fact, whole sections of the church of Jesus Christ preach against the plan. Saying all that power, it all left back then. You don't, don't you expect anything now? You don't you expect power? Don't you expect the baptism of the Spirit? Don't you expect to pray for the sick? Don't you expect to move in the gifts of the Spirit? All that's passed away. And Jesus is saying, man, when I go to the Father, the Spirit's going to come to you, and he's going to use you like he's used me, and this great army's going to take the world. Hallelujah. Boy, did we fool him. How could anyone who was supposed to follow this plan Act the way some of these things have or say the things that have been said. At times, what was done by people who claimed to be his was not even recognizable as something related to what he said should happen. Which tells us that it is possible to spoil his plan. But here's the good news. We still have the Bible. So we can join those 11 men huddled there in the moonlight. And listen again to the master explain the plan. And regardless of what other generations may have done, our generation can decide to believe this plan 
and allow God to do through us the great work of salvation that is in his heart. If we do, he will indwell us with new power and fill our mouths with a new message. So how many are in for the plan? Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you, Lord, to dwell within us. You, Jesus Christ has made us holy and clean. And we welcome you to come and baptize us as our Lord was baptized. We welcome you to minister through us the gifts and calling of God. We ask you to guide us and direct us, to lead us. We would be spiritually led and empowered men and women. Lord, we ask you to fill our mouths with the message that Jesus Christ is the Savior. That, 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 which, that to reject him is the essence of sin. That he is the one who's come to die for us. And to rise. The righteousness of his resurrection. Let us proclaim his resurrection without quibbling and without shame. That he has ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father. Let us proclaim it, Lord. Great Holy Spirit, you've come to empower us to do so. We give you our tongue. And just say, speak through us, Lord. The truth. And Lord, you've given us... You've given us authority through your cross and resurrection over the ruler of this world. We can swim like salmon against the stream and we can be victorious and defeat him. For you have already defeated him and broken his right to condemn us. Broken the power of death. We confess it. We declare it. Fill our mouths with such a message. We pray that in Jesus name. If you agree with my prayer, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.